As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show Weekend Review. Join us for the next hour or so where we'll look back on one of the only things more certain than death and taxes, Chelsea beating Tottenham with a clean sheet. We'll also jump to Serie A where we'll prod Milan and Juventus with a stick and ask them to do something. We'll look at AFCON's round of 16 where Burkina Faso and Gabon did not need prodding with a stick to do many, many things. And we'll round up the latest Premier League, Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga and all of that good stuff. My name is Ryan Bailey joining me today on this here Total Soccer Show is a bro who's in the know and will bestow upon yo his flow, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I thought you were exaggerating, but I am checking the most recent results between Chelsea and Tottenham. Yeah, Spurs not scoring many goals of late, it seems. Yeah, I think uh, looking back at the stats, which I did do last week, it's like the last five times they played, Chelsea have not, uh, Tottenham have not scored against Chelsea and uh, they're not very good at playing against them, Taylor. September 29th, 2020, which was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games ago was the last time Spurs scored a goal. And it looks like Tottenham haven't won maybe ever. Uh, there it is. Uh, January of 2019 is the last time Spurs beat Chelsea. And that's why my spending tokens went behind Chelsea for that game, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, <laughs> less about that, more about the man joining us who is stricter about foods that are allowed to be eaten in football grounds than Antonio <laughs> Conte is stricter about food allowed to be eaten at training grounds. Graham Rutherford, hello. Hello. Unlike Antonio Conte, though, you are allowed ketchup. I will allow that one. That one is permitted at a football ground. So, Graham, we're good friends. We get along. But I almost, we almost came to virtual fisticuffs um, before this weekend because of um, a double cheeseburger. Um, the, <laughs> the, the, the Twitter handle, Footy Scran, which is excellent. It sort of publishes uh, images of uh, food available at soccer grounds up and down the UK. Um, it published a picture, a delicious-looking picture, of a double cheeseburger at Lincoln City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it looked incredible. I said, I want me some of that. And, Graham, you um, torpedoed it with your scorn. You don't want that at a football game, though. Look, you've got 
You've got a few choices at a football game, but not many. So here are your choices. Anything in pastry. So that's, that's like your, you know, your sausage rolls or your pies. Within the pie category, you could have a scotch pie, a steak pie, a chicken and leek pie. There is a few options there. Then for a drink, it's tea, coffee, bovril. And then for something else, it's a Mars bar, a Twix or a Snickers. I would say other confectionery is available, but in this instance, it's not. So that is your choice. <laughs> I don't want, uh, what was that? A double smash burger. I mean, it looked great. It looked fantastic, but. Not for during the football. If I turned up to my seat with that, I would get a slap around the back of the head. See, this is something I think might be a north-south divide. And Taylor, I want you to weigh on this too, because growing up and going to soccer games, going to Premier League games at Silhurst Park, every other week I'd have a burger, a burger and chips, a burger and fries. And that was that was the thing that everybody did. Like, And a really, really bad burger as well, probably made from raccoon or retired circus animal or something terrible. Uh, and my point I was making by talking about this stuff on Twitter is that soccer food, Graham, seems to have gone a lot better. And I'm, I don't know what, uh, who was it? Someone said that you were being a food fundamentalist, which I thought was an excellent <laughs> way of putting it. Like, let, let the people eat burgers, Graham. Let them eat burgers. No, no. <laughs> there are some rules at football that you have to abide with. And one of the rules is that what you have to eat at halftime has to be terrible. It has to be terrible. <laughs> oh, I'm picturing now Graham like delivering pre-recorded remarks to a video camera a la like ISIS, except it's Graham <laughs> listing the very harsh and firm rules on what can and cannot be eaten in a stadium. Graham, yeah, I am getting like fundamentalist vibes from you when it comes to football uh, foods. My, my question then is, like, explain it to me like I'm five here for a moment. Is the objection to the food itself or is the objection to how involved the eating process would be in relation to actually watching and supporting your team? Um, yeah, a, a little bit the latter, because I'm thinking if I'm sitting down with that double smash burger, it, like that seems like that would take quite a long time to eat. You know, you need something that's going to, it's like how the Spaniards, they have, uh, what do they have, um, like poppy seeds or whatever it is, or sunflower mm. seeds at their game. Like that's that nice and easy <laughs> to eat. We, and, uh, and they so also have like a, a bocadillo, which is like a sandwich and a, and like a, like a wrap, like a foil wrapper. It takes like two minutes to eat. Whereas like that big burger, You'd be midway through the second half by the time you're polishing that off. <sighs> I mean, I think we're we're learning about the how Ryan and I can consume a hamburger versus how Graham consumes his hamburger. Uh, I will say, yeah, Turkey, you had tea. You had you could have hot tea. You could have I think like pumpkin seeds, or you could have sunflower seeds. And then there was uh, copious smoking, at least at the time when I was there. I did enjoy that because it does kind of keep you involved in the action. I enjoyed in the Bundesliga. Obviously, they have. The beers, and then for rivalry games, they have the non-alcoholic beers, which people still consume in large quantities because, I guess, in Germany, beer is beer. Uh, I, I don't know what my opinions are on burgers, but it feels like then, Graham, if we're going for, like, finger foods, you should be eating things that are easy, then chicken wings seem like they would be okay with you, and yet we also know that's not the case. <laughs> ah, but see, you're, get, you're getting messy with chicken wings. And, and, and the reason Taylor's bringing that up, listeners, because I, I was at the rangers Sterling Albion game on Friday night. Guy behind me at halftime goes away to the uh, concourse, to the kiosk. And with it being a big stadium and, I, and being Ibrox, um, Rangers home stadium, they do actually have some other options. One of those options was chicken wings. He comes back to his seat, sits down. His pal next to him goes, what did you get chicken wings for? He then got shamed into not eating the chicken wings, offered them around everyone in his seat. They did look dreadful, I have to say, like the most under 
cooked under-season chicken wings I've ever seen in my life. But that that's partly my point is you don't want these things at a football stadium because it's not going to be good. It's going to be a poor imitation of something you can get outside of a football stadium. Graham, I'm not sure your objection is to the food. It's to the the unwritten rules, the, the social decorum of soccer. You don't like things changing. Is that what it is? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I am a, a, an old an old man in a a younger man's body, right. I guess. Taylor, it's the the gramophate, not the caliphate, but the gramophate is what we're talking about now. With <laughs> yeah. the, the harsh rules on what can and can't be eaten in stadia. My oh, my final question. I do have another food related question. It gets us back to the game that we're going to talk about up front. I promise. The ketchup thing, especially with Antonio Conte. I did a lot of reading about this, and as always, once you go to the internet to read about a topic, it will either kill you or it's fine. Uh, there's a great range of opinions on ketchup, but it seems to boil down to it's a control thing. It's just he wants to be able to say this is what we're eating. He wants to be able to kind of dictate what is available in the commissary or the kitchen. And it's less about health and more about sort of making sure that everybody's on board with his philosophy. Is that fair or have you all found things that are actually problematic when it comes well, to ketchup usage? Is it not psychological as much as anything? I mean, ketchup seems like such a trivial thing that wouldn't make, make much difference. So if he bans ketchup, then he's got the players thinking about basically everything that they're eating and whether they like they should be eating it or not. So yeah. that's my theory anyway. That's psychological it, more than anything It's also else. about the kind of food you'd have ketchup with as well, right? I'm not going to have that if I can't have ketchup. Maybe that kind of thing. Maybe. I yeah. mean, I, I just do ketchup no salads. Is that is that not what you're supposed to do? I just, I just drink it straight. I just drink ketchup straight. It's like a sort of uh, a soup. Um. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. The joke of putting ketchup on a salad made me instantly nauseated. And maybe I'm just <laughs> ill, but th- that is the most disgusting thing I think I could have thought of before 10 a.m. on that's, a Monday morning. Yeah, that's the worst thing you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> a ketchup salad. Jeez. Oh. All right, on that ketchup-y bombshell, let's talk about some soccer now, guys. Let's park food for a moment. We've got lots to talk about today across Europe and AFCON 2. We'll start off with the Premier League. Uh, Manchester United versus West Ham. This one had a tight Man United win written all over it, once again, if you look at the stats. And that's exactly what happened. Marcus Rashford saving the day in injury time. Graham, did you see some, uh, some bright lights potentially coming from Ralph Ranić here? Yeah, dare I say it, but I, I think my United are starting to tentatively turn a corner under Rannick. I know, I know they only got the, the winner in stoppage time through Marcus Rashford. Um, I was alerted to that stoppage time goal by Taylor putting in the, in the group <laughs> chat in capital letters, Marcus Rashford. And I believe from his tweet as well, he shouted yeah. that at his yeah. uh, young infant daughter at the same time. Uh, not at her, not at her, <laughs> with her, uh, around her. Yes. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought this was the closest thing and it's a low bar, right? With my United under Ranyuk. I think they have been underwhelming so far, but this was the closest thing to a 90 minute performance that they have produced. I thought there was good structure there was pressure on the ball throughout um there wasn't a drop off in the second half which i think has been a feature of united under ranyak so i think they could have done with a few more chances obviously as i say they score their only goal in stoppage time but this was more like what i expected from united under ranyak in that you can see the sort of building blocks are there um but not quite perfect yet but progress i guess Indeed. Uh, interesting, Taylor. I saw uh, pictures on the their internet of all mm-hmm. the Man United players, or many of them, uh, pictured on an evening flight going out of Manchester to Dubai. Uh, we're hearing that uh, Newcastle are going for warm weather training in Saudi Arabia because, of course, 
from the best of my knowledge, Taylor, Manchester United players aren't going for warm weather training. They're just having a nice holiday for two weeks because uh, the Premier League has taken off. That seems perfect, right? I mean, I I guess so. I don't know. I, I I'm not like you know a rich millionaire, so Dubai to me feels you know? like an exorbitant expense. But for them, I'm sure it's just uh fun and good times in the sun. I'm not sure that's what they need. I think maybe unless maybe they're gonna go there and have fun and good times in the sun and also work on coordinated pressing. That would be super fun. Uh, but whatever it takes for them to continue to win, I am fine with. Because speaking purely as a fan, uh, that game was really fun and it did feel like the Manchester United of old. Cliche as that may be to say, in that it. It felt like a winner was coming. It felt like they were pressing or pressing for the winner, that is, that there were opportunities being created. There were chances in there. And Tony, uh, Anthony Martial doesn't turn in that one moment. It could have changed everything. But in the end, they get the result. But it did feel like there was some kind of collective fight, some collective spirit there. Maybe a little bit of bonding in the Middle East is all they need now. Yeah. I, don't, I don't understand Dubai as a concept. Why, like, like, why are there skyscrapers? It's, there's desert everywhere. You, you don't so, need to build skyscrapers in the desert. I, I have, I have, I think, an answer, and it is entirely informed by, like, my understanding of the, the awareness that petrochemical industries will not be here for forever, and they, I think a lot of the countries that are heavily reliant on the petrochemical industry are trying to pivot before that, like, becomes an industry that they don't want to be in anymore. It's why Saudi Arabia, I think, we're trying to make a hard move towards solar, and I think at one point we're about to acquire Tesla, and I think for Dubai... Uh, and and uh, Qatar, to some extent, there's an idea we're going to create the basically new Las Vegas, and that will yeah. be here for forever. So even when people are no longer relying on oil, you will still go there because it is the Las Vegas to the max. So I think that's what's happening is they're trying to create the tours, tourism industry while they can. That's well, right. certainly working for footballers. It <laughs> yeah. seems yeah. to be the only place they, they've yes, ever heard of. Yes, yeah. it is. I've, I've actually been to Dubai, to Dubai many times and have seen many soccer players there, in fact, actually. And Graham, your question of why are there skyscrapers in Dubai, is that not the same thing as saying, why are there skyscrapers in New York? South, South Dakota's got loads of room. It's because like, there's a central business district, district and there's buildings that are tall because there's lots of people concentrated yeah, in that area. But- I think that's... Kind of it. I've seen yep. I've seen New York uh, photos of New York in 1991, and I've seen photos of Dubai in 1991, and they do not period look period similar period. So I see where Graham is coming from. That suddenly <laughs> there's these giant buildings that maybe aren't uh, fully occupied, but maybe they will be one day uh, by uh, footballers who have been spending their time there. That could work okay. out. Burgers at games, tick, uh, Dubai, tick. We're getting through Graham's <laughs> list very quickly in this podcast. Let's get back to some soccer, though. Everton Fine. kicked off live without Rafa with a 1-0 loss to Aston Villa. Uh, Wendia getting the goal, assisted by Luca Digne. Hurrah. Uh, Stevie G and wins on Merseyside. Merseyside, excuse me. Uh, wonderful combo there. Taylor, we yes, saw, sir. I think we saw the same tweet on this, a rather unsubstantiated tweet mm-hmm. relating Mr. Jesse Marsh to the position of Everton manager. What say you? I, I say I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure it would be the best move for him uh, to start with, but I, I do feel, Ryan, I feel like you've led into it well with the unsubstantiated aspect of things, that when you look at the betting odds, at least, Jesse Marsh is not on the short list, and TalkSport have a very long list. He's not on that one either. This feels like somebody kind of connected some dots. Hey, they've had Americans before. Uh, they'll have Americans again, so why not have an American coach? And let's see also if that kind of moves the needle at all. Maybe there's a little bit of PR behind mm. it, but I don't think it will happen. I also don't Again, I don't know if it would be the worst thing, because I think if you're going to kind of back him and let him do what he wants or kind of back his philosophy, that could be good. But then you've got to invest and you've got to sort of get the buy-in. You've got to give him time. 
and we thought he would get more time at Leipzig, and that wasn't the case. I don't know if Everton can afford to kind of mess around. I feel like a more proven manager or a more acceptable manager in terms of the English media is more likely in my mind. So maybe the media is just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks with this one. Never. Which is a, it, well, it's appropriate, Taylor, because yeah. that's Everton's motto, isn't it? Pretty much for their, their <laughs> operations. So we'll see if how that one evolves. Uh, Sun, uh, Southampton, excuse me, went one up over Man City and held on for dear life for a 1-1M result in their game. Uh, title race down to nine points. Liverpool with a game in hand. Oh, we might have a Premier League title race just yet. We shall see. Uh, Watford won Wolves 2. This game, peculiar. It was poor for 15 minutes after officials spotted an unofficial drone circling overhead. It was not the drones they were looking for, Taylor. I've done a Star Wars quote. I've done a Star Wars quote. I've never seen you it, have. but I did a quote. Thank you very much. And and I just immediately go to like, this is the machines. This is them preparing. They're, they're already scouting us. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> well, so disgusted were Premier League Productions Limited that they sent a police helicopter into the skies looking for the person who uh, put the unofficial drone up it there. Seems I think... an inefficient approach to bringing yeah. a, drone, a drone down. Yeah. A helicopter. South Park did this already. This was an actual episode <laughs> of South Park that they just have increasingly large drone armies to combat the other <laughs> drone armies. I feel like that's where we're headed. But like the person operating the drone is going to be on the ground somewhere. Like, get a car. That might be better. Um, Thomas Frank was shown a red card in that one as well. Or for a big net. <laughs> yeah, Thomas Frank. Well, Graham, was he just the red card was for being a bad loser? I think. As yeah, far as I can tell. The, the, it's not been a great uh, week for Thomas Frank because his reaction to losing to Manchester United, I don't think, was uh, particularly classy. And then his reaction here was quite fiery as well. So. Yeah, maybe the only person in the Premier League who's a worse loser than Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> uh, Watford nil, Norris three on Friday night. At the same time, the USMNT roster was coming out. Josh Sargent peppered the Watford goal. Sargent peppered the Watford goal. Did you hear that, Taylor? Sargent peppered the Watford goal with his first two Premier League goals. Uh, he had a VAR check on his first goal. VAR official uh, in that game. Taylor, do you know his name? Uh, I do not. John Brooks. How do you like that? Uh, I, like it a lot. I like it a lot. I like it a lot more than the Sergeant Pepper pun, which I was prepared to audibly sign to the mic for five seconds about. But you redeemed yourself quite expertly. <laughs> uh, Norwich looked dead and buried, and uh, now they're out of the relegation yeah. zone. Um, they had a floodlight failure at this one, too. Felt very 90s. Also, Graham, one more thing on this game. Norwich's away kit. What color do we call that? Coral? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, it's like blue, isn't it? Like a light sort of blue from memory. What? What what color is it? I I can't like remember. Ready, I, I watched this game and I forgot orange, what kit, what kits they were. Orangey, ready. Mm. All right, okay. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember anything about this kit. I'm, I I was too distracted by Josh Sargent scoring two goals in a Premier League <laughs> <Adam> match. <laughs> <laughs> well, that he did. By the way, I said Watford played Wolves. It was Brentford. That's why I was talking about Thomas Frank there, just to correct uh, myself from earlier on. But we need to sound the Newcastle victory klaxon, gents. John Joe Shelby, a cheeky low free kick led to 1-0 win at Leeds for Newcastle, their second win of the season. And as I mentioned, Taylor, they've rewarded themselves with Warm weather training in Riyadh over two weeks in that wonderful place, Taylor. Yeah, great. Cool. Yeah, Saudi is a little bit harder of a sell for me. Like, they haven't quite, I think, done the same job of building up the whole tourism side of things, at least in my mind. So, I guess, have fun, Newcastle. I guess it makes sense, given their new ownership structure. So, maybe mm. that, like, you're trying to kind of bridge that gap, bring them together, but at the same time... 
maybe this is what Graham was getting at earlier. I can think of better places to go and relax and have sort of a nice downtime. You kind of build the team chemistry up a little bit, but at least we know they won't be drinking. So maybe that's the positive side of it. Maybe so. Maybe that's it. Uh, elsewhere, Leicester. Leicester did up against Brighton with a 1-1 draw. Brighton equalising eight minutes before time. Brighton's 12th draw of the season. And they're late comeback kings, it seems to be at the moment. Uh, Arsenal nil, Burnley nil. Uh, Burnley's first game in three weeks. It does seem that Burnley now play soccer again. Good for them. Uh, they needed a result with Newcastle and Norwich <laughs> winning as well. Uh, not a bad point for Burnley as well, Graham, right? Getting a point at, uh, at the Emirates there. Yeah, it's really quite difficult to know where Burnley at, given, are at right now, given that they're bottom of the league. I think they're still bottom of the league after, even after that draw, but I think they have about 15 games in hand over everyone else, so I don't really know whether they're in a relegation fight or not. I mean, I guess they're in a relegation fight, but whether that that position at the bottom of the league is a false one or not, I don't, I don't think anyone has any clue. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You want points on the board, ideally. So I'm sure Burnley will be hoping for a few more games to come their way. Um, Graham, it has been a bad weekend for VAR in the Premier League in many respects. And no worse than Crystal Palace 1, Liverpool 3. Palace looking very good here. I don't think the scoreline did them justice particularly. Liverpool looking a bit tired. Um, the third goal coming from a slightly controversial Fabinho penalty awarded by VAR. Graham, did you catch that one? I did. I watched this. I watched this game live. Um, thought Crystal Palace. It was a frustrating performance from them because they didn't really get going until they were two 0 down, and then all of a sudden they they looked great. Um, you know, Elise on the right side, Odson Edward always been a big fan of of his. Um, the I I don't know what the consensus is among you two, but the the Jota penalty I thought was a penalty, and I'm a little bit confused as to why everyone is very. Mm. Uh, enraged about that incident and actually the three I thought there were three big VAR incidents this weekend so the first one is the Manchester United winner which to me is clearly on side I even tweeted about it am I going mental here because it seems just seems like he's clearly on side to me then there was a Liverpool penalty um, and then there was the Kane disallowed goal in the, in the Chelsea Spurs game which I also thought was the correct decision so I, yeah I'm a little bit confused by the rage this weekend yeah, over I VAR can... I see where you're coming from. I think maybe the Kane one is the one I'd questioned the most, but perhaps we can get onto that shortly. Sure. Uh, Taylor, I don't know if you saw there was a viral video of Jurgen Klopp stepping off the team bus at Selhurst Park when the when the Liverpool team were leaving, uh, handing out beers to Liverpool fans who were waiting there. I've got questions, Taylor. Why did they have beers on the bus? Yeah, that's Why my did question. he not provide a bottle opener? Uh, what does <laughs> Graham think about this as well? Because we need to know, because he's probably breaking some unwritten rules as well. Taylor. What What kind of beer? Green bottle, Carlsberg. That seems very Liverpool. I don't know. Oh, because it's their sponsor, right? So they're probably giving out like the the sponsor's beer so that you can have that that viral moment of Jurgen Klopp with a Carlsberg uh, in his hand, and then the sponsor is happy. I think well, I've got a theory. I think he confiscated them. I think uh, one or two players were like, <laughs> "Oh, look, let's have some cheeky beers on the way home." And Jurgen Klopp's like, "Not on my bus!" And goes and gives them <laughs> to the fans. What do you think? I- I can't make out what brand of beer it is. I'm looking at it now. It seems to be like a brown bottle. It's not one that I'm terribly Uh-oh. familiar with. But no. well, then maybe beer, it's the no. opposite. Maybe he was trying to, maybe he was trying to get rid of them so that the uh, Carlsberg sponsorship wouldn't fall through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it seems like he's taken them off the bus and beers on the bus home after a football match are absolutely within the rules. Like, that is yeah. <laughs> entirely within the, the parameters of the rules. So no, there's no uh, violation there in my book. Excellent. I'm glad we got your opinion on that one, Graham. Uh, we can move on at that point then. The grammar, uh, the grammar fate rules again. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it has spoken. It and has. Why don't we speak a little bit about Chelsea 2, Tottenham nil. Uh, Ziyech and Thiago Silva getting the goals here. Mr Conte back at the bridge. Um, Spurs came into this one after two losses to Chelsea in the League Cup in recent weeks. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, they don't have the best record against Chelsea. This had a Chelsea win written all over it. Um why don't we start with uh, Ziyech in this one? Uh, Taylor, he's, it seemed like there was a lot of complaints from Chelsea fans before this game of him being included here, and he has been included a couple times recently. He redeemed himself somewhat. Yeah, I would say so, and I think it's probably a credit to Thomas Tuchel for playing a player who was left out of his national team for the African Cup of Nations, and you're sort of involving him on the club side of things. You are maybe doing that on purpose to show that he should have been included and that he is a good player, but then that faith is rewarded with just an inch-perfect goal and a really lovely strike. And it does feel like Chelsea are at times very good at this this season and last of getting players who are maybe the subject of scrutiny, the subject of criticism, and getting them back into good form. Maybe I'm being overly generous here, but I feel like that's happened to some extent with Lukaku, to some extent with Pulisic. Uh, Hudson-Odoi has had issues in the past that now seems to be kind of fully involved in the squad. And then here we have it again with uh, Zayek. So I I would say another positive strike for Thomas Tuchel, uh, but maybe that's just my my blue-tinted glasses for this one. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe so. Graham, how, how tinted were your glasses here? What did you think of Chelsea? It seemed to me that they just sort of strolled in con- into control by the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much control that they could afford to bring on Saul late on <laughs> in this one. Yeah, uh, Sal Burn, sorry about that. They had, I think it was 15 to 4 shots in this one, about 70% possession as well. It didn't seem like it was going to go any other way, did it? No, it didn't. And you got that sense pretty early on. I was I was impressed by Chelsea and I was impressed by Tuchel as well. So the context of this match is keep in mind that Chelsea came into this game on, on a run of just one win from their last seven Premier League matches. Um, what they were previously doing wasn't working. And, and so the changes Tuchel made for this game, I thought, were long overdue. Mm. Um, in essence... Tuchel eased Chelsea's reliance on wing-backs um, because Chelsea basically don't have any good wing-backs right now with Ben Chilwell and Rhys James out injured. Um, he obviously goes for normally goes for a, a back three or a back five, um, whichever way you look at it. And Chelsea played a, a back four in this game. Um, and while they would normally ask the wing-backs to be the ones to provide the width and a bit of an attacking outlet on the flanks, it took all put that onus on Hudson-Odoi and um, Ziyech, who were also, they were also asked to stay wide quite often to, to provide that width. Um, and I thought Hudson-Odoi and Ziyech did, did a really good job. They took on their men when they when they had the chance. This is how the, the first goal comes about with uh, Hudson-Odoi creating the space on the left. He drives forward, commits a defender, creates the space, sprays it out to Ziyech, who then cuts inside, and, and it's a fantastic finish from him. But that direct running, I thought, made a big difference from for Chelsea, and we, we haven't really seen that from them for... Uh, for a long time, you know, in, in previous matches recently when we've an- analysed Chelsea, we've we've spoken about how they would go sideways or even backwards. You know, Pulisic was, was guilty of doing that against, was that against Manchester City? I forget, all the games um, kind of merge into one big blob. But yeah, he um, it was, it was a, a very different approach from Chelsea where they were trying to commit Spurs defenders into decisions and very often those decisions from Spurs were the wrong ones. Yeah, it did seem like they had a good intensity going on in this game and took advantage of Spurs being a little bit passive. Taylor, let's have the Romelu Lukaku conversation here. Um, Maybe the highlight of his game was having a complete whiffed air shot 
just after the half hour mark. Uh, we could hear quite loudly on, on the comms uh, the he's into Milan, he's into Milan, Romelu Lukaku, he's into Milan, coming from the Spurs fan. They've had a lot of practice of that over the last few weeks, of course. Um, he's got five goals, Taylor, this season, the same as Harry Kane, incidentally. Tammy Abraham's banging them in in Rome at the moment uh, and did do over this weekend. Armando Broya at Southampton uh, doing pretty well as well. And we've got Lukaku in this situation. What do you make of it, Taylor? I actually thought uh, this was a positive performance from Lukaku. Maybe I am uh, crazy here. But I thought that he was still doing a little bit of the hold-up work, which has been a source of some controversy. But I also saw him doing more of what he wanted to do, more of what he was doing at Inter and really enjoying. I saw a lot of kind of direct darting runs in behind. Sometimes the ball was sent to him, sometimes it wasn't. But I also think those runs forced the defense to drop off a bit more, and it creates more of a gap between the lines. It creates a little bit of space at the top of the box. And I and I think that's part of the reason why Zayek is able to get that shot off the way he is. And so, to some extent, Lukaku functioning as a really effective decoy can have significant value, even if he himself isn't scoring the number of goals we would have expected. It still does feel to me like this was a pretty cohesive performance from Chelsea, which, as Graham has already pointed out, is no small feat, given that this hasn't been a, a, a necessarily cohesive team with the formation changes, with some of the personnel we see involved. I think that Lukaku doesn't get a goal is probably unfortunate for him and for Chelsea fans, but that he has an impact on this game, looks lively, looks involved, and at the end of the day, annoys Spurs fans, all positives if you're Chelsea. I, I, I agree, Taylor. I don't think he had a, a terrible game, but there was there were still those moments where... You watch him do certain things, and you think if he's at Inter Milan, he he does something different with that. There was there was one moment in particular when he's released down the the right side on a counter attack. He takes this giant touch forward. He runs it straight out of play, and then kind of trips over his own feet. And you and I'm just thinking, he wouldn't have done that for for Inter or Belgium, you know. And and maybe that's yeah. there's not much sort of um, tangible to my analysis there, but it just feels like he's a he's a very streaky player in terms of his confidence. And at the moment, his confidence isn't isn't really all that, and and so you're, Chelsea are still not getting the the absolute best out of him. While he he did perform a role here, he he played re- relatively well. Um, he's still not the hundred million pound striker that I think Chelsea thought they were getting. Why don't we turn the conversation to his counterpart on Tottenham, Harry Kane, who had the ball in the net on the 39th minute, um, but there was deemed it was deemed that he uh, fouled Thiago Silva, who went absolutely flying on that play. So we're not sure whether that one should have stood. Uh, VAR decided it shouldn't have stood, Taylor. Um, your thoughts on Harry Kane here? Um, yeah. He seemed to be all over the place in terms of like picking up the ball and going a bit deeper and going from wing to wing and maybe getting a bit more involved than maybe I've seen him in, in recent games. But uh, what did you make of him here? Um, first, uh, to the penalty thing, I actually, I think it was correctly chopped off because the, the shove in the back on Thiago Silva is maybe minor, but I think when you're running at full speed, it does still kind of push him over. But it it has the added impact of if you're using someone, if you're if you're pushing somebody when you're running at full speed, you send them flying, but it also slows up your momentum a bit. And I think that's why he's able to get the ball under control, get himself under control and get the shot away. So I think he does gave, gain an advantage. And I lead with that to then say that I think maybe that's a good sort of metaphor for this game. It felt like a frustrating game for Harry Kane, but I think it was also a game that made me feel sort of bad for him because sometimes when I'm not a Spurs fan, I'm not necessarily an England fan. I think I sometimes think he's overrated. I don't see all of the hype at times. And in this game, even though he doesn't get the goal on the end, 
you can see how good he is at his, when he's holding the ball up, but he can still hit a 40-yard crossfield ball <laughs> without really having a ton of time and space, but he still spots it and is able to play it. Then he kind of moves central, gets the ball back. He demands the ball back, turns and goes at the Chelsea defense, and I think ends up drawing a foul in that sequence. And that was sort of par for the course from him. It was very mobile. He was chasing 50-50s. He was trying to win them, but then if he didn't, he was chasing them down and trying to put Chelsea under pressure. He was dropping in. He was making runs in behind, and I think it was a fairly thankless game for him because there is no Son in this one. Uh, I think he doesn't have a ton of support when he does get the ball, Harry Kane, and so I think he did what he could, and it was an admirable performance. I think Chelsea just comprehensively were the better team in this one. Well, they certainly were. Graham, for me, this this was a tale of a Chelsea team playing a team who ultimately weren't strong enough to compete with them. We saw Matt Doherty starting on the right side of midfield, which feels like a bit of a, a rogue move. But maybe maybe Conte's trying to tell the people upstairs something by doing that. But you've got a midfield of him and, and Winks and Hoiberg going up against Chelsea's midfield, Jorginho uh, and Kovacic and whatnot. It, it doesn't quite compete, does it? I mean, let, let me ask you this, Graham. Which, which Tottenham players would get in that Chelsea team? Kane? Anyone else? Uh, yeah, Kane... Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of struggling exactly. uh, beyond Kane. Yeah, I think obviously there is a mismatch in terms of the the individual talent of the two squads. However, I also thought that the setup which you alluded to there from Conte was was strange, and I didn't fully understand it at times. So obviously, you had two managers here in this game who are renowned for using back five, back three, whichever way you want to look at it. And they both they both ditched it here. Um, Spurs also went for, for back four. And I wonder if this was because Conte was wary about how Lukaku might find space against a back three. Of course, Conte got the best at Lukaku when they worked together at Inter. He knows the, the damage that he can cause. So... That that was maybe that maybe explains why he went for a back four. That midfield four that he went for though, it just didn't really make sense to me at any point of this match. So you've got Matt Doherty and Sessignon as the wingers in that midfield four. Of course, both these players are fullbacks by trade, so that that was slightly strange. Then you're leaving the two central midfielders who were Hoyberg and Winks against the Chelsea three so you're getting overwhelmed in the center of the pitch as well you're not really controlling anything and so it, it was it was a peculiar setup that was for me designed to work on the counter and obviously that Kane disallowed goal we maybe that was maybe the system at its best where I think Bergwijn breaks through the middle plays it out wide to Sessegnon he cuts it back for Kane that was maybe what it was designed to do but it just it just felt like the two wide players that they had Sessegnon and, and Doherty in particular just maybe didn't provide that outlet. And I do wonder if, if Doherty on the right side was a, was maybe a bit of a message to the Spurs board heading into the into right. the, the final week of the window. Obviously, Adama Traore has been linked strongly with Spurs. That's a role that he would perform relatively well. He would give them a lot more forward thrust on that right side. So that's my only really explanation for for why Doherty in particular was on was in that midfield. It just it just didn't really work to my eye. Great. So, one I just had a quick question for Graham for 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 newer listeners because this is the thing I think we've talked about in other episodes and maybe in a soccer one or one or or two episodes of that. Graham, why would a back three struggle with one forward? You were mentioning that maybe Conte was a little bit concerned about what Lukaku mm-hmm. could do against a back three. I'm assuming that's because historically that's how you beat a back three. Yeah, so a back three, I think, um, obviously you get different ways of a back five or a back three working, but. Um, primarily what is conventional is that the wingbacks will get pushed high up the pitch, which then leaves your back three to kind of stretch across the 
the pitch. And so you can get spaces between the centre-back and the left-sided centre-back and the centre-back and the right-sided centre-back. And Lukaku in particular is a player who um, he thrives in those spaces, those little half spaces at Inter Milan. That was where he would, particularly in the right-side sort of channel, he was he was very prolific there. So I think maybe Conte maybe wanted a back four to try and tighten that up. Obviously, he's got Dorothy and Cesar Young, who are basic, basically, they played as wingbacks in the system, despite the fact it was a 4-4-2. So he kind of had um, four tighter defenders as that back line to try and limit the space. There's a media narrative, Taylor, that Conte might be sending a signal here, as Graham and I have alluded to there, uh, that they might want to strengthen. Do you think there's a scenario where he leaves Spurs sooner than we think if they don't start signing people? I mean, look at this game. So desperate was he for players that he brought on a regenerated member of the Beatles in this game. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I said George Harrison at first. I think now I would go Ringo Starr. Ringo. Uh, yeah. Brian Hill with the mustache. It's an interesting choice. And the mod uh, haircut to boot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to, to your question, Ryan... Like, I, I hope not, because I think Antonio Conte is a really fun manager to have in the Premier League, but he's really fun when he is backed, and I don't know if he's fully ever happy, but when he is motivated and feeling like he has the support behind him, I don't know if he's feeling that right now, and I don't know if he needs that necessarily in January. I would assume that if he doesn't get reinforcements in the summer, that could be where the kind of frustrations do start to become a bit more public, a bit more vocal. Indeed. Well, he's got a couple of weeks to think about things. Uh, Chelsea 2, Tottenham nil here. We're going to come back after this break with some more from the continent. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So the Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention to Italy, Inter Milan 2, uh, Venice fashion brand 1, Inter staying top of Serie A with that result. The clothing brand took the lead in this one as well, but Nicolo Barella and Edin Dzeko with the Inter goals. Classic strikers headed, headed goal in the 90th minute from Dzeko to win this one. And Nani came on for the last eight minutes for the House of Venice. That's fun, isn't it? Tell you what else is fun. Um, Empoli 2, Roma 4, uh, Roma with three wins in a row now, kind of turning things around a little bit, you could say. They're into sixth place. Tammy Abraham with two goals here. Four goals in 13 minutes for Roma in this one. Um, Graham, I don't know if you saw this online. Um, on Jose Mourinho's social channels, he put up a video of himself having his daughter's jewellery put on him. I don't know if you noticed lately, he's pushing his daughter's jewellery line quite a lot. And there he is, a video of him, like in the dressing room, it seems to be at half time, having another gentleman put a necklace on him. It was quite something. Right, I I had not seen this video, and I've not seen anything to do with his daughter's jewellery. How how see I I am now confused because I 
presumed you yeah. were talking about like a young daughter yep. who was putting his put her like fake jewelry on him <laughs> as like you know as as kids do to parents but now i'm thinking it's an older daughter who yeah. has a line of jewelry it's a grown-up daughter i'm saying late teenager maybe early 20s daughter who has a jewelry line i should probably stop mentioning it because i'm promoting it now effectively as well <laughs> but uh he's he's been going pretty hard on it if you check his social channels he talks about it all the time and he's wearing it over his shirt and being quite um overt with it shall we say uh-huh. It's, got, it's not it, like Mourinho to promote uh, products for money. <laughs> uh. Yes, very much not. Um, but at least he's got some silverware. Silver? Wearing some silverware? Yeah, cool. Uh. Right. Yeah, okay. Anyway, Napoli <laughs> jumped into second spot. They overtook Milan with a 4 0. I feel like there's no chance that's silver. I got to say that. I feel like it's got to be at least white gold. Maybe he's rocking silver from the jewelry line. But I feel like Matilda Mourinho, I've looked it up now. I feel like it's a lot. It seems to be a lot of gold, is what I'm saying. Okay, yeah, that 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 feels very on brand for Mourinho. Bit garish. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, Napoli uh, with a four-one win over Salernitana uh, to take overtake uh, Milan into second spot. The marquee game, Taylor, of round twenty-three yeah. in Serie A, though Milan nil, Juventus nil. I was expecting a Juve win in this one. They came in in better form, undefeated in the league since November, and had that big win over uh, Roma, the four-three. That was last week, I think. The, their last away trip. Um, Milan could have gone top here. Juve could have gone top four here. In the end. Neither happened and wasn't a classic, Taylor. It was not. I thought if if Juve, uh, I said this before we started recording, if Juve had gotten a win here, a 1 0 win with maybe some of the changes or later on in the game, I do feel like this would have been Max Allegri's thesis statement about what it is to be a manager. It's basically put your team out there, but then make the adjustments in game to nullify what the opponent is doing and find a way to win. Who cares if you played well as long as you get three points? But then they didn't. They didn't get three points. They got a, a goalless draw. And I think that's their... They've now nine games unbeaten in Serie A, six wins, three draws. And to me, that felt positive. Seeing the reaction to this one from Juve fans, significantly more negative. And so mm. looking at it again, I think, yeah, maybe there are expectations that this could have been a moment when you gain some points on a team that is in the top four right now. It could also be sort of a statement game. You're beating Milan. You're sort of moving back into the conversation about being top four. I think that would have moved them into top four. Uh, So I see why Juve fans are frustrated by this one, and I think it goes back to the reasons why they were frustrated and why Allegri left in the first place. Um, And I don't really have a ton of positives if you're feeling that way, but if you're less sort of Juve-oriented, I felt like there were plenty of positives to this performance, and I think that a few more just connections, a few more tighter dribbles from Paulo Dybala, and I think maybe this would have been three points for Juve. I, I, I have to admit, I am not a Juve fan. I found this performance from them very frustrating. Okay, given let's talk about ha- it. Yeah, so just, I just, it felt like to me like they, they had, they'd changed something recently, and we've we've spoken recently about their good form, and in particular Wes McKenney's good form, and the reason Wes McKenney has been playing better recently is because he has been liberated slightly. And that, uh, that has happened to a lot of the Juventus players, particularly in their midfield. And Manuel Locatelli has kind of been pushed forward a little bit more in recent games to great effect. And so to, you know, this, this was a big opportunity for Juve. Um, that's a Milan side without Simon Kier. Uh, Tamori's missing, Frank Kessie's at AFCON, Benacer is only just returned from international duties, Latan gets taken off after 27 minutes in this game, so it really felt like AC Milan were there for the taking and 
just to go back to the conservative approach that hasn't been working for Allegri um, at Juventus, particularly in the first half of the season, it, it just felt like a regression again. And yeah, maybe, maybe a point away to Milan is not the worst result, but three points here would have pushed them back up into the top four. And it, it's these sort of games that Juventus are not making the most yeah. of. And I, I just found it very frustrating. I thought it was a poor performance from them at, kind of throughout the team. I looked at a lot of the statistics you know, De Sciglio, he um, completed just 69% of his passes. Alexandro attempted four crosses and didn't complete a single one of them. Um, I thought Locatelli, he he um, he manages 39 passes in 64 mi- minutes of play. He was uh, was pretty loose in a lot of his tackles. I thought Bentecourt was was guilty of not really passing the ball forward. And then Weston McKenney, he turned the ball over four times, so even he wasn't immune. He's been in great form recently, so it just it just felt a bit all a bit ragged and disjointed, and it was summed up by the fact that Juventus didn't have a, a single shot on target in the whole match, and they they had fifty three percent of possession in this game. You know, they had a, a good share of the ball, so it, all those things together, that was just what frustrated me about this I performance. Think- I think that makes sense, Graham. I think I can bridge the divide a little bit um, because what I saw was a Juve team that were not set up well in the first half. And I saw Milan being much more dominant. I thought they they pressed. They made Juventus uncomfortable. Juve really, really struggled to play out of the back such that they went direct pretty much every single time in that first half. And I think that explains some of those passing stats and some of those poor crossing numbers. I think they were just too blunt. They were too direct. I think overly focused on getting Milan on the counter, and that wasn't really working. And so when they come out in the second half, and I felt like they, Juve, picked their spots, when to press, when to make Milan uncomfortable, they started winning the ball back further up the pitch. And then a thing I saw pretty consistently was even when Juve would have moments to counterattack, if it wasn't a very clear, like, one-on-one breakaway opportunity, which obviously never happened, um, most of the time I saw them slow it down and cut it back and let numbers get forward. And I think in contrast to the first half when it was somebody running down the one line and maybe they had somebody near them, sort of, and it was only two players involved in the attack, in the second half they were getting five and six players into more attacking positions and nothing comes of it, but to me, that sort of positive game development is what Allegri is good at. And that's where I was thinking, if he ends up getting this late goal, it is sort of this idea of starting poorly, figuring them out, changing your game, getting the results. But it's that getting a result part that I think when it doesn't happen, it calls Allegri into question again. Because for me to see them kind of fight back and find a way to get a point is a positive if you're a Juve fan with the payroll they have, the history they have, there's an expectation that you're not just settling for a point after adjusting your game plan. You're supposed to be the dominant team. And I think that sort of identity difference is going to be a big part for them, and they have to kind of figure out how to deal with that if they're going to have a, a stable season for the first time in a while. Taylor, I think I read this game slightly differently. And, and there's been a lot of focus here on Juventus's frustrations. That's fair enough. But for me, this was a game that almost felt like it was Milan's to lose as well. They Maybe they didn't push hard enough. They were a bit too defensive. Yeah. You know, they're at home here. They're the team, you know, in the title race here. I felt like they could have pushed a little harder to, to, to get the win. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I think to the point Graham made, Zlatan coming out as early as he did, you're replacing him with Olivier Giroud, who you know is an exceptional player, but I think also showed some rust or just showed that he wasn't expecting to maybe come on in the first 28 minutes 
because his first touch, I think, is five yards out in front of him and it allows Juve to counterattack the other way. He has some some missed chances. He has some missed passes. I didn't think he was as effective. I didn't think uh, Macias on the right-hand side did enough to sort of justify that start. And I think, though they were solid performances, I thought Krunic was excellent. I thought Central Tonali, that was one of the best performances I've seen from him, at least mm. recently. Uh, but I think overall, yeah, Ryan, I think there's a, there's an argument to be made that they, maybe if they press a little bit harder, if they make Juve more uncomfortable in that first half, I think they end up finding a way through. And that they don't is maybe a negative for them as well. So it's negative across the board. Never mind, this game was bad. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah. La Liga, La Liga. Um, Graham, Real Madrid and Barcelona apparently signed a non-aggression pact, according to Marca. <laughs> Uh, an agreement so they don't interfere with player contract renewals uh, with one another, respectively, so they don't inflate each other's contracts, basically. Mina Riola is going to be the opposite of rubbing his hands at that, I guess, Graham? <laughs> I actually had... Um... I'd missed that story. That's that's a new one yeah. on me. I, had, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that, but it doesn't surprise me too much just because... <laughs> it um, like it. Yeah, it does sound a bit like a joke. Um, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me too much just because... I guess Super League buddies stick together yeah. and <laughs> Barcelona and Real Madrid are in that boat together. So there's, yeah. some, there's something sinister here that I don't like about that story. We should look into it a little more, I think. Um, but in the meantime, why don't we talk, Graham, a bit about Atletico Madrid 3, Valencia 2. Uh, Atleti trailing until the 90th minute mark in this one uh, and managing to turn it around. Did you catch this one, Graham? I did. And this was one of the, the games of the season in La Liga so far. So to give you the the quick box score first, um, Yunus Musa, of course, of uh, USMNT fame. He gives Valencia a 1-0 lead, his first La Liga, La Liga goal of the season. It's a well-taken strike from just inside the box. And then Hugo Duro puts Valencia 2-0 up just before half time. At this point, Atleti are struggling pretty badly. They've not been in the best of forms recently this season. They've been pretty vulnerable at home, which is a, is a new one. And normally, the, the Metropolitano is, is a bit of a fortress for them, but that hasn't been the case this season. Then comes the the fight back. So uh, Cunha, he has the deficit on the hour mark. Then Correa, who he's often been a bit of a saviour for Atleti this season. He repeats the trick as the the saviour in this game. He scores an equaliser right on 90 minutes. And just as you think this game's going to end 2-2, with four minutes of stoppage time played, uh, Mario Hermoso tucks away a Correa cross and Atleti take all three points to keep themselves in the top four. It wasn't quite Spurs against Leicester City, but it, it wasn't far off. Um, in terms of analysis, I just because it was so chaotic, I would struggle to analyse this <laughs> much, but I do believe maybe Taylor has some thoughts because you watched this one live as well, didn't you, Taylor? Uh, I didn't watch it live. I watched it uh, knowing the score, and sometimes I okay. try to avoid that if at all possible. This time I'm glad I didn't, because knowing the score allowed me to kind of know what was going to happen and then how the change was going to occur and try to figure out what was the difference. Why were Valencia dominant in the first half, and then how were Atleti able to pull it back and get the result? And I think my answer is that basically Atletico made it their game, that... It was interesting to watch this game from a Valencia perspective because Yunus Musa is playing. It made me kind of rooting for him, therefore rooting for Valencia. And to see how many times play stops and Atleti players are in the referee's ear and having conversations and Simeone is getting cards and his coaching staff is getting cards and they made it 
ugly. They slowed it down. They made it disjointed. And I think Atleti thrive in those moments, which sounds like an insult, and it is not meant to be. I think they thrive on creating chaos, and then they have the personality, the disposition, and the technical ability to be able to create opportunities, to make something happen, to keep the mental discipline you need once you get into that kind of physical slugfest. And that they're still executing on a technical level in the 90th minute and the 93rd minute is a credit to them. And there are individual moments in there. There's the Correa equalizer, but then also I think Correa is the one to intercept a very poor Valencia clearance to start the move that leads to the third goal. I think he also has the reverse pass for uh, the Cunha, who then gets the assist for Mateus Cunha, uh, who gets the assist for the winner. And I thought there was individual moments, individual moments of, 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 intellect and just overall like brilliance but at the same time making it their game and making it this sort of back and forth war is when atleti tend to thrive and i think they did on the day i think you could see valencia sort of succumb to the emotional and physical demands of the game not execute their game plan as well in the second half and they end up conceding three for the loss there was last minute action on the other side of Madrid as well. Real Madrid to Elche to a last gasp draw for Real in this one. Uh, Benzema missing a penalty early on. Uh, and they went 1-0 down for quite a long time, Graham, in this one. Yeah, so th- th- there was some fantastic football by Elche in this match. In particular, the, the second goal that they score. Um, so they go 2-0 up in this match. The second goal was was one of the, the goals of the season in the Liga. So it's, it's fantastic skill from uh, Lucas Boy to lose two Real Madrid players. It's sort of a, a drag back and the two Real Madrid players, they go for uh, hot dog and chips. And <laughs> then he slots in Perry Mila, who finishes well, a cross. On, Graham, are they allowed Courtois. to eat hot dog at the stadium? Um, in Spain, yeah, why okay, not? Let's, okay, carry on. Uh, <laughs> a bocadillo and chips then. That's what they have in Spain. Um, yeah, so he he then plays in Mia, who, is, who then pl- um, shoots across Courtois, fantastic finish. Um you got the sense that there was going to be Real Madrid were going to fight back and they score two goals in, in the last eight minutes. Um, they can handle losing two points, Real Madrid. They're still in a commanding position at the top of La Liga, but that injury to Benzema, that's the real costly aspect of this result. I saw Marco this morning saying that it's it was only precautionary and they still think he will be available for. The big game in Real Madrid's calendar is this Champions League last 16 tie against PSG. Um, that's obviously a, a massive game. So the initial suggestion is that he might still be okay for that game, but I think everyone is a little bit nervous at the Bernabeu about that. Yeah, his first career penalty miss apparently in that game as well, Graham. I'm quite surprised there. And you're right, Mia's uh, finish for that second Elche goal was lovely too. Uh, the XG on FOTMOB was 3.92 versus 0.5. Um, that's suggesting Real Madrid had the uh, uh, the better of this one, but not necessarily uh, by points. Alaves nil, Barcelona 1. Frankie de Jong um, getting the uh, 86th minute winner, Graham, for this one. Barcelona now in 5th. Still seems to be the story of a side struggling against Leicester opposition this season with Chabi. This was pretty much the, the same again from Barcelona. I swear I've seen them play this 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 match five or six times already under Xavi, where they control much of the game but struggle for chances, and those cra- chances that they do create, they, they don't take. This, however, I think is maybe where we're just starting to see the influence of Ferran Torres in particular. So unlike any other player at Barcelona, he is desperate to get into goal-scoring positions. Um, he wants to get into the box, and it was through one of his runs into the box that Frankie de Jong scores the winner here, Torres, breaks forward from his um, position on the right side of the front three. He brings it down, he squares it for De Jong and he finishes into the net. 
So I, I see signs of progress for Barcelona. Torres has had a good start to his Barcelona career. I think this break probably comes at the wrong time for them because there is a sense that they are growing as, as a team. I thought this was better from De Jong, who's been in poor form. That's Frankie De Jong, I should say. He's been in poor form recently. He played a good game here. I thought Sergino Dest as well showed that he can still contribute. There's been some question marks around him as well. But... um yeah, Barcelona now up to fifth in the La Liga table, just one point behind Atleti, who are in fourth place. And as I say, it feels like this break is maybe coming at the wrong time for them because they are slowly but surely getting uh, getting better. Um, Xavi's quote, Graham, at Barcelona, the shirt weighs 20 kilos more. Uh, they mm. need to have a word with Nike about that. That can't be helping their performances. <laughs> Yeah, something's gone wrong in the production process yeah. there. Yeah, they should look into that. Uh, Bundesliga, Hoffenheim 2, Borussia Dortmund 3, 5 goals here, conceding needless goals. Very on brand for Borussia Dortmund this one. Uh, Marcus Royce uh, topping off a nice team goal in that one as well. Uh, by Leverkusen in third after a big 5-1 win over Augsburg. Musa Diaby got a hat-trick there. Uh, Ricardo Pepe was subbed out of that one in the second half. Uh, RB Leipzig, a 2-0 home win over Wolfsburg. Uh, Leipzig now have 4 wins in a row uh, their next opponent after the break by Munich away a oh boy uh, Wolfsburg oh boy. are now winless in 11 games in all competitions and speaking of Bayern Munich a comfortable 4-1 win over here to Berlin they are six points clear of Dortmund in the Bundesliga let's take a very very quick break when we come back AFCON this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking AFCON. We started the round of 16 on Sunday. But just a quick note about Monday's games, uh, as we, which are just about to happen as we record. Comoros are hosting... Uh, sorry, Cameroon are hosting Comoros, I should say. It's their tournament. Uh, Comoros will be playing with an outfield player in goal, says the reports. Um, their three goalkeepers are out of action, uh, one of whom was injured during the Ghana fixture, and two have tested positive for COVID. So all three keepers are out for that one. Graham, see seems like the perfect uh, AFCON situation there. Yeah, yeah, typically AFCON. And this is already, not not in terms of starting a match, but obviously Serge Aurier uh, played a, played some minutes and goals earlier in the tournament. Mm-hmm. So a tournament that has two outfield players playing in goals in two separate matches is, yeah, that's the tournament for me. So yeah, this is, this is definitely one that I will be keeping an eye on. I'm interested to see how Comoros do against the hosts and one of the strongest nations in their tournament. I guess you could call... Their strategy with an outfield player in goal, a, a, what a false, a false one. Um, <laughs> so I was yeah, expecting that. that. That's good. That's that's, a, that's an interesting situation for them. But at least they're not playing the the top scorer in the competition right now, Gomaros. Uh Yeah, I, I feel bad for them. I would expect Cameroon to go through, but then again, Graham, we fully expected Nigeria to make it all the way to the final, and here we are oh, yeah. with them not doing that. Yeah, we'll get to that shortly, Taylor, but. We we didn't see all of these games on being sports because of their peculiar what? broadcast decisions, Taylor. What is happening? I don't understand <laughs> this anymore. Like at first, we talked about it previously. I'm sure you all have talked about it since then. But like initially, I thought it was hydration breaks. Then I thought there were technical difficulties. Now they just have commercials. Like yeah. in the middle of the game, they'll take a break to do two and three commercials, and then they come back. And sometimes you still get the waiting screen after the commercials. And then it cuts back to like, great chance there. We won't be showing you a replay. I am not enjoying that. I don't understand what's happening. So, and it feels pretty lazy to me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm confused about this, this situation. You have been complaining about it in the group chat. And I've been meaning to ask. So when they, when they come back from a commercial mm-hmm. end game, do they pick up again so that it's it's delayed almost, or are they picking it up live? So you've just They're basically missed a chunk of the game. That at one moment they came back in. I'm not exaggerating. It was like like he had clearly said a great, and so you come back to like shot right there, and it was just like oh <laughs> lovely. We like like would have loved to have seen that, but mm. great. Yeah, no, they're they're like cutting out chunks of the game. At least as far as I can tell, that seems to be what's happening. Indeed. Uh, we mentioned Nigeria, Tunisia. Why don't we uh, start with a little chat about that one? Tunisia getting the 1-0 win here, Taylor, on another questionable bobbling surface in the stadium in this one, by the way. Uh, Yusuf Mzakni getting the long-range winner hit straight through the keeper's gloves for the improbable win over Nigeria here to advance to the quarterfinals. And Alex Awobi uh, getting a interesting red card yeah. for Nigeria as well, Taylor. Yeah, not a great game from Nigeria, and it starts with that goal. I have some uh, some sympathy for Okoye, the Nigeria goalkeeper, because he sees it late. It is sort of struck low. There are defenders in the way, and then it has such ridiculous swerve that he basically, when he sees it, it's already probably halfway uh, towards the goal when he's able to finally get a clear sight of it. And Okoye, you can see him shape up to handle it. Like he gets the knee down. It's going to be an easy save. And then there's just such vicious swerve at the last second that he is completely frozen and into the back of the net it goes. Could have done better. Probably should have been a little bit more alive to it. But I have some sympathy for him. Less sympathy for Alex Awobi, though it does feel like a harsh red card to some extent. It goes to VAR. 
It's ruled that he was, uh, I guess, like overly aggressive with a challenge, but that he's only on for seven minutes. <laughs> I would assume he was sent in with uh, the mandate of, you know, make something happen, get in there, stir, stir it up, find a way to win, get stuck in. And he did that overly so in this game. But I thought up until that moment, it had been a really interesting game, albeit slightly dull at times, but it felt like a definitive knockout game. Nobody wants to get overextended. Nobody wants to leave themselves exposed. And it felt like it was going to come down to an individual mistake or an individual moment of brilliance. And I feel like we sort of got a combination of those in the end. Yeah, Graham, fair play to Tunisia, missing seven players through COVID in this one. Some pretty impressive defending they didn't do as well as nigeria in the group stages yet here we are yeah first of all i would just like to apologize to all nigerians for jinxing their national team uh well taylor and i did uh (laughs) we did that ryan your your senegal shout is uh is still alive until they also get knocked out in the next round and then we'll have jinxed everyone um yeah, it just felt like the the chances never really came for Nigeria, and when they did, they they spurned them. Like when uh, Umar Sadiq, he had a, a really good chance late on. He sticks it by the post, and once that yeah. went, once he missed that, you're kind of like, yeah, this is this is not going to be Nigeria's day. But I think Tunisia deserve a lot of credit for the way that they defended, as you as you referenced there, Ryan. It didn't feel like Nigeria were really tearing them apart. Um, I saw a lot of people saying this was a you know, an almighty upset and, and everything. And it, it is an upset given that Nigeria were the, you know, the tournament favourites after the group stages. They were favourites to win this match. But I think Tunisia are, are, are a decent team um, and and they proved it in, the, in this match. So it was it was a frustrating one for Nigeria. I do wonder, I don't want to revise too much because I, before this match, I had found Nigeria the, the most impressive team in the tournament. But I do wonder what sort of difference having uh, Victor Osiman, I'm never, I can never pronounce his name, but... He is the sort of, he's a, an elite level forward who can create something out of nothing or take a half chance. And that really, it felt like Nigeria needed a player like this in, 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 in this game. Yeah. And he might have made a difference. And he's obviously missing through injury at the moment. So he could have changed their tournament. I think he also just has wheels. Like he is so quick. And I think it's a credit yeah. to Mondhair Kabayer. I apologize if I butchered that one, Tunisia's manager, because what I saw from them, they come out in a 4 3 3, but there is very, very little intent to play through the middle from Tunisia. It is usually playing down the channels from fullback to a winger, or it's just sort of long balls dumped into the channel. Uh, And I think the reason for this was because they did not want to get caught on the break. They knew that there were opportunities if they did sort of concede possession in the middle that they could get counted on pretty effectively with Iheanacho, with uh, Awani Central for Nigeria. It seemed like their defensive shape was often a 4-4-2, and they had those numbers in the middle, but they didn't have a ton of pace, and they didn't have a ton of that like kind of next level component that you might need. And so I think Tunisia's game plan pretty nu- pretty much nullified Nigeria's attack. And I do think Osimhen in that moment would have made a difference because having him there as a counterattacking threat, he just adds that next level pace and that finishing ability. And I think Tunisia would have had to adjust. Maybe they keep more numbers back. Maybe they're even more sort of direct, more blunt, and less able to get sort of control of the game in the second half to get that opportunity that they end up getting. So, Graham, I think that's a great shout that, once again, we are having a conversation about personnel missing for any number of reasons, managers missing in some of these games, and I think that creates some of the erratic results that we've seen so far. But all that said, credit to Tunisia, who I feel like have to be backing themselves at this point with that win. 
Indeed. And the first quarterfinal is set. Tunisia will be facing Burkina Faso uh, this coming Saturday. Burkina Faso, uh, who got past Gabon in a very, very eventful game, Graham. Uh, Burkina Faso winning 7-6 on penalties, which means we've got a Taylor Rockwell penalty diagram, everybody. Yeah. Woo! A brilliant shootout in this one. Uh, Graham, it seemed like uh, this was going to be eventful when Gabon took a shot from kickoff. <laughs> I'd, I'd actually forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That that set the tone. I, I want to ask Taylor about your penalty diagram from yep. this game. What was it just all over the place? Yep. I mean, did you give up on it halfway through? Uh, this was a wild shootout to decide this one. It really was. There was so much going on, and it's one of those where I had to make notes about like what I was going to try to pay attention to on the replay because it also felt like I, I honestly don't know if we had var for this shootout or how much it would have been used but Hervé coffee really really towing that line of staying on his line and a couple times it felt like maybe left a little bit early he gets his hand to one that ends up going in and i think if he had saved it maybe that one comes back if they were going to use it pretty strictly but i thought he was my standout performer not just because he does like 14 somersaults in a row when they end up winning because he <laughs> guessed right in the nine round shootout he guessed right four times one of those, uh, he gets a hand to, but it still ends up going in. But the other three were the misses, one of which was a save. So I guess credit to him for getting it right when he needed to, and he does have that big save. I feel a lot of sympathy for Lloyd Paloon, uh, the final taker for uh, Gabon, who misses uh, his chance because, like, that is a one that will probably stick with him because he hits it perfectly top corner. Like he hits it at the crossbar and the post where they meet is where the ball went and a half inch down or a half inch over. And that is about as perfect as your placement could be on a penalty. So that's the margins, I guess, in this one. Uh, the other thing I noted from the, from the uh, graphic would be that Burkina Faso basically put one, two, three, four, six of their penalties in the exact same spot. Only one of which ended up getting saved. So maybe a little bit better could have been done by Amonome, uh, the Nigeria goalkeeper in the shootout, or excuse me, the Gabon goalkeeper, uh, getting my games confused. Uh, but I think overall, in the end, uh, credit to Burkina Faso for taking their chances and finishing them effectively. The winner, of course, being on the opposite side of the goal from where everyone else had gone. So uh, maybe <laughs> we uh, should give some credit to uh, Waldrago. Um Taylor, will you put a picture of your penalty diagram on, on, on the Twitters, please, so the, the, the listener can see it? I can do that for you, my friend. I can do Thank that. Thank you so much. Uh, I think, was it five misses in total? There was three misses in sudden death in that shootout. So very, yeah. very eventful. And, and uh, a regular time, Graham, was pretty eventful too. It was 1-1 after 90, and then we had extra time after that. But uh, Aston Villa's Bertrand Triore uh, missing a penalty and then getting a goal on the mm-hmm. counter. And the equaliser coming from a corner in the 91st minute. Yeah, it was it was an, an eventful game. Uh, Bertrand Traore doing Bertrand Traore things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a, a, a an electrifying player when he when everything comes together for him. But he does have a habit of maybe missing the easier chance, which was certainly the case with the the, the penalty that he misses. Um, he hits the bar from the penalty, doesn't he? I'm just yes, trying to remember. Did. Yes, he hits the bar. And then it's a nice cam finish on the on the break. Um, he hits the, the post with that finish as well, but it ends up in the back of the net. So... I think um, Afcon started off pretty slowly, but it seems to it seems to be warming now. And pretty much every game 
we've had since the uh, the referee debacle with the two phantom whistles has been <laughs> entertaining. And those two games yesterday certainly were entertaining as well. Yeah, very entertaining tournament. Uh, as I mentioned, Cameroon Comoros is happening on Monday as we record. Tuesday, we've got Ivory Coast versus Egypt. Uh, the round of 16 is done by Wednesday. One other note from Africa, uh, the CAF World Cup qualifying third round draw was made over the weekend. Uh, we've got Cameroon, Algeria, Ghana, Nigeria, uh, DRC versus Morocco and Mali versus Tunisia and Egypt versus Senegal, Sarni, uh, Salah excuse me, versus Mane in that one. So there's five games and basically they're two-legged playoffs in March. The winner of each of those games goes to the World Cup, such is the way that CAF does it. Um, I think that's just about it from my perspective for today's show. I will say that there was a PSV played Ajax. It was 2-1 to Ajax in this one. Ajax are now two points clear of PSV with that win. They leapfrogged over them. And Taylor, this made me remember that Mario Goetze is a thing because he scored the goal for PSV. I'd completely <laughs> forgotten he was there. That's always that needs to be an episode. Like I don't know how we do it. Like maybe we just make it into a quiz. Maybe we bring back Wikipedia games to do it. But whenever you find the random guy playing in the random place that you thought retired four years ago, it's always fun and it does make them more fun to watch. It makes them a little bit more appointment television when it's like, Oh yeah, that guy who I remember from the twenty fourteen <laughs> World Cup is still doing things. Let's see what they're up to. Yeah. Good stuff there. And one last thing before we check out, listener. Um, Graham Rutherford teased us with tales of chicken wings at his cup game, (laughs) uh, Rangers versus Sterling Albion, on Friday evening. Tell us a little bit more about your experience there, Graham. Yeah, by by full time, my emotion was relief. So I know to most people, 4-0 might seem like a thrashing, but I said to my wife before I I left the house for the game um, that I would take 4-0. And I swear that happened. I I said I would take the the result that we ended up getting. The gulf between these two teams is absolutely huge. I know, Ryan, you uh, support a, a smaller club, but... Wimbledon would absolutely hammer Sterling Albion. <laughs> uh, we are a part-time team and we're not even a good part-time team. We are one of the poorer part-time teams in the country. So for us to hold our own for large periods of periods of the match away to the Scottish champions who have been in good form recently, um, I'll take that. It wasn't a complete embarrassment and uh, we had 800 fans at the game, which was was fantastic. Um, we've, we've sold out our allocation, so... That's really the most you can hope for, I think, from this sort of situation. Yeah, definitely so. And as as a supporter of a lower league team, it is always a special occasion when you go to a big team for a cup game. So I imagine you had a wonderful time there. I've just figured out it it was you telling them not to eat the chicken wings, wasn't it? You were the you were the food (laughs) fundamentalist there. Admit it. I I was I was thinking it. Maybe I managed (laughs) to uh, kind of transport my my thoughts into one of his friends, but it was actually someone else that verbalised it, and I was very uh, grateful that he did because chicken wings at a match. That is indeed unacceptable. (sighs) On that bombshell, Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for your time on this here Weekend Review. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, you are a star as always, sir. Aw, thanks, buddy. Right back at you. And listener, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with another one. Check out that feed. But for now, bye! Bye!